<sighs> Colonel, I'm trying to sneak around, but my whole cube is double sleeved with perfect hearts, so my deck is dummy thick, and the sound of me shuffling keeps alerting the guards. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I am your host, Andy, and I am here with my very chilly co-host, Anthony of Admit Denier Maddox. People can enjoy, I mean, just like my feelings about Cube, people should enjoy Cube their way, even. Yeah. Uh, what, what am I trying to say here? Who's, I don't like Oven Mitts that much. Yeah. If you like Oven Mitts, that's great. Enjoy your Oven Why mitts. are you getting so defensive? Who's to say this is a criticism? Feels I, like It feels like a criticism. Just because you know that I use and enjoy oven mitts because I don't like to be burned by my pots and pans. I also don't like to be burned, and, and I rarely am. <laughs> rarely is not never, buddy. Rarely is not never. Yeah, you just use a dish towel, which I feel like is the... Just it's use a, a dish towel. Now, I have feelings about dish towels. I think people should have more of them, and they should use them liberally. The reason I bristle against the lack of uh, oven mitts is I feel like at least part of it is uh, trying to be a little bit cool. It's cool to not... To not need an oven mitt. Like, oven mitts are for squares. They're for, like, you know, your grandma. But, like, you know, chefs in the kitchen, they don't have oven mitts. So, I feel like part of it is just that it's cool, you know? I I legitimately don't think so. You don't I, think it's cool? I, I think that there are some things where I might fall victim to that. I just don't want to use them. Like, I'd so much rather just grab a folded up dish towel than, like, have a thing that I have to slot on my hand. It's just so much more cumbersome. Like, if I had it, I just wouldn't reach for it. Okay. Fair enough. That's it. Fair enough. But also, you look cool when you're cooking. So, you know, you get... Thanks. At least I think so. I don't ever look cool, I think it looks cool to pull a thing out of the oven with just the dish towel draped over your shoulder. That's very cool looking. Well, you should... I mean, if you want to be a cool chefy guy, you shouldn't drape the dish towel over your shoulder, but sometimes I do. Wait, why is that not cool? Because, I mean, it's your shoulder. It's dirty. It's... You got dirty shoulders? Yeah. Everybody's got filthy shoulders. My this is a known thing. Are pretty clean. Dirtiest part of the body. I don't leave the house anymore. <laughs> my shoulders are pretty clean, I think I would say. This is not a, a podcast where we talk about how to be cool. Thank God, because I think we would not be the authorities on that particular subject. Correct. This is a podcast about magic, and we, we spend a lot of time thinking about magic, Anthony. I wouldn't say we're authorities, but uh, we definitely have some stuff to share with the world when it comes to magic. I will say the the sort of Venn diagram, not Venn diagram, what's the other kind of graph? A box graph, box and whisker uh, chart. The thing that everyone, you know, you're picturing a Venn diagram. It's getting closer. They're overlapping more and more. I think magic is kind of becoming cool. You're suggesting that the thing with two circles overlapping each other is not a Venn diagram? So the thing with a Venn diagram is it just shows all the possibilities. There's no scale involved. There's a different kind of graph that right. actually takes scale into account. I've been thinking too much about data visualization. That This is also not a podcast about data visualization. Do Venn diagrams have to be two things with one overlapping area, or can it be three, four, seven? It, it can be all of them. I think there is a limit that you can't make more than that. Before it stops becoming a Venn diagram, before you but can't you do just it can't do it. Like geometry does not allow you. I think it's like 13 or something. Because I've seen the really, really elaborate ones They're where it's like weird. a dozen shapes showing all of the unique overlapping unions between those shapes. They're quite beautiful. We'll put them in the show notes. By we, I mean Anthony. I already saw him start Googling for it. So he's going to pull up those and put it in the show notes for people. So you can enjoy the world's most complicated, not Venn diagrams, whatever it is they're called. Well, th- those can be Venn diagrams. Okay, fine. They are Venn diagrams. It doesn't matter. Jesus. <laughs> Ugh. 
Anyway, uh, on this episode of the podcast, we are going to be talking about the power of language. The words we use to talk about magic cards and how they help us communicate what we're trying to communicate and sometimes hinder us in communicating what we're trying to communicate. This, Anthony, I think is especially relevant for Cube because Cube designers talk about aspects of magic that, frankly, other kinds of magic players really don't talk about because it doesn't come up because the focus in constructed formats and retail limited is really solely on just that player perspective of winning. And that means that less things come up and need to be discussed than when you are a cube designer and you're actually making the decisions as to what cards go into your environment and which ones are excluded. I mean, I think that it is important to every kind of magic and like every aspect of the way we do stuff as humans together. But I do think there are a lot of reasons uh, why cube is especially challenging. Like I think in other contexts, it's just much easier to find language that just works because of all kinds of reasons. Right. Before we do that, though, we are going to get back on the listener-submitted Cube train with a pack-one-pick-one from listener Jared's Cube called Mozart's Cube. I believe Mozart is the name of his uh, dearly beloved passed-on dog. So, rest in peace, Mozart. Oh, that's a nice, nice little memorial. This is a powered cube, Anthony. We don't often do pack-one-pick-ones from powered cubes, so this is a fully powered list, a 540-card cube that looks like it's got some really busted stuff in it. In addition to the powered cards, we also have some uncards here. We have some Mystery Booster playtest cards. Should we just dive into this pack? Let's do it. All right, the pack is Crucible of Worlds, Mirren Crusader, Dragon's Guard Elite, Transcantation, Mizium Mortars, Wall of Roots, Jack in the Mox, Stirring Wildwood, Mind Control, Basalt Monolith, Putrid Imp, Scrubland, Falconrath Aristocrat, Liliana of the Veil, and Palace Jailer. You can find all these cards on the cards mentioned page, which we make for every episode. So it'll have all these card images as well as any other card we mentioned through the course of this episode at luckypaper.co slash podcast slash 81 slash cards. It'll also be linked in the show notes. Anthony, what is speaking to you from this pack? You know, a lot of times I don't try and be super spiky and optimal about draft picks uh, because I want to, you know, see what I'm feeling. And all the cards here are powerful. There's lots of options. This cube has a special rule where if you win, you get to sign a basic. So I'm pretty motivated to really try and be spiky and optimize this pick. And I feel confident in my pick. I mean, I, I definitely know Your what I'm taking. feelings do not matter. What is optimal? <laughs> However, I would not be surprised if my pick turns out to be wrong. But I, I am absolutely taking Jack in the Mox. And I think that is right. I got to be honest. I'm not thrilled about playing with Jack in the Mox. For those not familiar, this is an unglued card. It is a Mox. So it's a zero cost artifact. When you tap it, instead of getting something known, you roll a die, a d6. If you get a one, you sacrifice it and lose five life. That's costly. Not great. If you get a two, three, four, five, or six, you get one of the Wooburg colors in Wooburg order. So for the most part, it's kind of, I mean, I think. I would just treat it as a colorless mox. Right, exactly. That sometimes you lose the game. Yeah, that will happen sometimes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this is a very swingy card. The description of this cube and the letter from listener Jared explain that they like the swingy aspect of cube. In fact, Anthony, I, I, you always want to read the cube description. And this card is listed in the cards you are actually forbidden to pass. So, Oh, perfect. Our pick is forced by the cube and by Jared, and we're taking Jack in the Mox. I got to ask, if that wasn't in the pack, just to take the, the power out of the question, what is the next thing that you're looking at? That gets a little bit more difficult. I feel like, you know, we don't have anything that is like super super powerful we don't have any fetch lands but we have sort of signpost cards for a bunch of the powerful archetypes so wall of roots is a great uh, ramp card we have putrid imp which is a key piece of a reanimator deck 
and I just don't have a perfect sense of what which of those options is going to be the most powerful in this particular context. Yeah, to clarify, I think we have lots of powerful cards. We don't have a very powerful, very open pick. The powerful cards are right, committed. Right, right. So it's not that there's a lack of powerful options here. It's just we're not really having the flexibility to stay completely open. You could just take a Scrubland. Yeah, I think maybe the Scrubland or the Liliana are the most open picks. I'm taking Palace Jailer is what I'm going to take. Okay, that's fair. Maybe a little bit uh, a little bit greedy. It is a double pip card. First pick. I'm going to really be forced into playing white if I want to play that card. But uh, the upside is really strong if you get there. Oh, and man. But yeah, now I'm being influenced again because I last time I played Palace Jailer, I just lost to it consistently to players outplaying me and attacking me and stealing the monarchy and that's really not the kind of gameplay that what i love was that in? that's a great question is it in jay's cube yeah probably it hasn't been in mind for a long time which is why i ask if it's probably local playgroup member jay's cube that makes a lot of sense all right jared we're taking the jack in the box as your instructions specifically dictate we must thank you for sending in your cube for a pack one pick one rest in peace to your dog if you want anthony and i to do a pack one pick one from your cube on lucky paper radio Send a link to it with your name and pronouns to luckypaper.co, and we will add it to the queue. Anthony, people love when you go on rants on this show. Do they? They do. Do I do that? I feel like I... It's rare. Here's the thing. You're you're a very uh, well-spoken, intellectual guy. I feel like you often are like couching your words in a, in a, a rationale that is very rigorous. And it's not often that you get really like emotive about something. So people like when you get riled up. And I know one thing that will get you riled up is the topic of today's episode, which is the language used to describe magic cards. Specifically, I want to talk about... So far, this is all cool. So far, this is cool. You're fine with this. Specifically, I want to talk about using flagship cards as shorthand for like cards of a specific type. The most common ways we see this in the Q world, I think, is people calling something a Baneslayer or a Drifter, And this is often presented as some kind of binary... If you listen to this show a lot, you will notice that we basically never do this. We never use these kind of terms to describe creatures. We also don't describe things as a rabble master or a tarmogoyf or whatever. But this is pretty common in the cube world for people to describe threats this way. Like, oh, that's a Baneslayer. This is a Maul Drifter. That's another tarmogoyf, whatever. And I want to talk about how this kind of dialogue affects the cube design world specifically and how we talk about magic. Can we start with why this even happens, Anthony? So Magic is just a complicated game. There are a ton of cards. We need some way to make comparisons and break. It's, it's sort of, you know, why do we have language at all? We need ways to communicate about things and then also use that language to to compare ideas and draw draw conclusions between things. So if you just say, well, here's a card. It's brand new. We don't really know what it's about. That's just not possible. We just can't treat every card as unique identity. So we need to find some way to develop a language for categorizing things. And especially if you're talking about this game a lot, if you're spending a lot of time in a cube Discord server or talking about it with your local playgroup or a close friend of yours, and it's a frequent topic of conversation, especially amongst a known audience, right? Like a known uh, known peers where you like you know you're coming from the same perspective. I think shorthand is really helpful, right? Like it just helps you save time and not having to explain every time you want to say a three-drop red creature that produces tokens and snowballs out of control and can win the game on its own. You can just say a rabble master, of which there are very clearly cards that are superficially and in their play patterns very similar to Goblin Rabble Master. It was kind of clear that Wizards of the Coast stumbled on like a successful pattern that they liked in design development that they've been kind of riffing on for a while. And so I don't think it's a stretch to look at Legion War Boss and Najila and Krenko Tin Street Kingpin and say, like, yeah, that's a kind of rabble master. It, it kind of makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, we could even take a step back to look at broader sort of categories of cards and talk about removal. Removal's a new word we've introduced to describe a whole bucket of effects. And if every time there was a new card that said, oh, well, this one exiles something, or this one reduces its power, or this one does so much damage, if you have to explain from scratch what every single one of those effects is, it's just going to make communication a lot slower than just being able to say, here's a new removal spell, let's talk about it. Yep, I actually, you got way ahead of me. Those are things I made notes here too, like, cantrips kind of loosely defined I mean, a thing that replaces itself draws a card but you can get into nuanced discussions about like is remand a cantrip great question we, we can get into that nuance if we want same thing can be said honestly for things like mana dorks counter spells that one maybe feels a little more like rigid but again like is remand is memory lapse a counter spell is keep safe and hindering light a counter spell like who's to say combat tricks is what we talk about often like some combat tricks are very clearly combat tricks by that sort of definition other ones are a little more on the fence is white main line a combat trick. So all these terms have a usage and they they emerged kind of naturally from the discourse for a reason to help players talk about the game and frankly understand it better. I do want to touch explicitly on linguistic relativity, which is the thing you and I are well versed in. At least we've read the Wikipedia page a couple of times. <laughs> and it's come up in, in past episodes before kind of in passing. But this is just the concept basically that the human brain kind of, for the most part, thinks in language, which is to say that it's very difficult for you to internalize something, like know something, recognize something without a word to describe it. And having additional language to describe something changes the way your brain processes that information and can possibly store it. There's a classic Radiolab episode where, you know, they go into the fact that, you know, we talk about how a lot of Eskimo cultures have like 50 words for snow. And the reality is that when snow is everywhere, the different textures of snow and densities of snow and applications of snow makes it kind of a different thing. And so they had a different word for it. And they understand the different ways that snow could be a lot better than somebody that lives in Florida that just knows snow as snow could possibly understand. In English, we have 87 different words for sandwich. <laughs> there you go. That makes a lot of sense. In American, we have 87 different words for sandwich. Uh, similar thing with colors, actually. This is a really interesting one that's been studied on like a, a very rigorous academic level. The ability for you to physically, with your eyeballs and brain, recognize slight variations in wavelengths and colors of light is largely dictated by the words you have to describe those colors of light. So if you grew up in a culture where indigo and, and purple are described differently, and that's the way you were raised, then you are actually physically better at distinguishing those colors from each other, where somebody that just comes from a color that only has purple is much less well-equipped to establish those fine differences. So this is a whole, a whole sector of brain research that we are obviously not equipped to talk about at length, but I think this is also an important thing to touch on here because I personally believe that these terms are not just strictly shorthand. I do think a lot of times they can help create and transfer knowledge in the magic world much more efficiently than, you know, making sure everybody read, read some article about something, right? Right. And I think the key example of this for me is the Baneslayer Moldrifter thing. Yeah, I mean, I would just maybe expand a little bit more on that specific example of bucketing things as removal because I, I think that that really highlights the sort of difference in when we translate from language being purely a communication tool to a thought tool, because initially you just needed to come up with a way to talk about it and tell somebody, here's, right. you know, we're playing this game of limited. What, how much of this kind of effect do I need? OK, let's give it a name and now we can talk about it. And a new player might look at Doomblade and Pacifism and say, these are completely these are totally, different. Cards. They are totally they different have effects. nothing in common at all. When in reality, we know from the way the game plays, they are both two mana removal that plays. Right. On the whole, pretty similarly. But now you actually have this new way of thinking. Because you've introduced this term, it's actually right. much easier to say, okay, I can put these into buckets, and now I've opened up some brain space to to think about other things. And 
that that's just a really powerful tool that we we use all the time. So language is not just a communication tool. It really shapes the way that you think and organize information. I agree completely, Anthony. So given all of that context, why do you get so mad when somebody says something's a Baneslayer or a Mold Drifter? So the reason that I get mad is not Ooh, so he's much. He's getting angry. <laughs> Look out. He's turning green. It's sort of an adjacent topic where I think that a lot of times people take sort of sets of terms and try to treat them as being both mutually exclusive and comprehensive. Mm -hmm. That is to say, a set of terms will be every single thing will fit into exactly one of those categories. And so often this just isn't the case. I I mean, like one of the, the things outside of magic that used to always frustrate me, people would get into these long arguments in, I don't know, the late 90s, early 2000s about <laughs> sandwiches. I did make up the sandwich statistics. The hot dog sandwich early. thing? Not even that. They would just be like, well, is this a po' boy or is this a hoagie or is this a hero? Or And it's like these terms were not designed as a rigid structure and people designed sandwiches in these categories. These terms all developed independently in different areas to describe different things. If you're it's in more one like place, a big, complicated uh, seven-way Venn diagram when you look at all the terms for sandwiches. Sure. Or I, I kind of think of it more like gravity wells. You know, any sandwich trends in one direction or another, but like these these are similar terms and we, we shouldn't try and treat them as these sort of rigid buckets. And I think that mold drifters and bane slayers are the same thing, where initially these terms were introduced exactly for this value that language can provide because the who was uh, do you remember the writer of that initial article so i'm not actually sure i maybe should have done a little more research i'm not sure if patrick chapin is the one that coined the bane slayer mold drifter dichotomy but it has been most rigorously described in his book next level deck building and it's worth noting before you go any further that he does describe this as a comprehensive he does but it is comprehensive and it includes a third category which rarely gets mentioned which is titans he basically says every creature in Magic is a Baneslayer, a Muldrifter, or a Titan. And his description of those things, I'm doing this from memory, so maybe not word for word, is that a Muldrifter is a creature whose body is not the value of the card, a Baneslayer is a creature whose body is the value of the card, and a Titan is a creature who has both. And you can obviously see how this is a spectrum, of course, right? Like, it's not that the body on Muldrifter doesn't matter at all, right? But his argument is that if the reason you're playing that card in your deck is for the value it gives you outside of the body, it's a Muldrifter or it's a Baneslayer, or if it's both, it's a Titan. And that's, of course, referencing the cycle of Wooberg Titans from Magic 2010, where they had these cards which had huge bodies and also very, very relevant ETPs. Right. So I think that he was doing a service, making this intentional choice to say, let's pick some concrete language to talk about this value tempo axis, which is difficult to talk about and difficult to think about if you don't have the terminology for it, right? Mm-hmm. But I really don't agree that those terms are mutually exclusive because in this context, it's very easy to imagine here's a card that just literally does both of these things or does neither of these things well. But now the terms are getting too complicated. (laughs) The third term makes it too complicated. I mean, that is what makes the classification comprehensive by Chapin's descriptions. But yeah, I mean, it still is a spectrum. So I I still feel like it's, it's more practical to talk about these things in terms of degrees or things are trending towards one direction or another, especially as magic has just gotten more and more complex. And then what what really does frustrate me is that people then, rather than saying, here's a useful thought technology, as long as we are, you know, we we need to leverage this in order to have a conversation about tempo versus value, people instead just have long heated debates about, is this a Baneslayer or is this a Moldrifter? And now you're getting away from the original point. You're not talking about why is the card relevant and how does it, you know, play a certain way and play a certain role in a deck. Instead, you're just arguing over semantics of, is this an A or a B? And it's not actually 
productive. I largely agree. I think sometimes that argument is a proxy for the actual discussion, which is someone suggests that card A is not viable in this environment because it's a Bane Slayer and you can't have four mad Bane Slayers in this environment. And sure. somebody else's response might be, actually, I believe that's Muldrifter. And what they're actually saying is, I do think it's viable here for this reason. And the way they're making that argument is by putting it into a different classification, which overall, I agree. My biggest complaint about this stuff is that I often think people take this thought technology of like categorizing cards in a certain way and then take that and apply it to kind of dogmatic perspectives. Like, for example, Bane Slayers aren't good enough to play in Vintage Cube, for example. For sure, yeah. Uh, and once you've taken a thing that is just meant to like loosely categorize stuff and then translated that to some sort of dogmatic take, that's where I have problems with it. And frankly... Those are the people I see using this language the most. I think it's kind of coincidental that the people that are oftentimes saying like, well, I'm not going to run that. That's just a Bane Slayer are the ones that also have this dogmatic take on what is and is not viable or what can and can't work in a given environment. And again, based on Patrick Chapin's definition of Bane Slayer, a Mana Dork is a Bane Slayer, right? That's a card whose value is its body. It's not giving you any other value. It's a creature in play that acts as a land. It costs one mana, but it's still a Bane Slayer. Here's where we get to some of this other like weedy area because... You know, when people refer to Rabble Masters, I think of Rabble Master in the way that I described earlier. It's like it was clearly a card that was successful in Standard and Constructed, that Wizards thought was successful in achieving the goals of the design that they had intended. And so they riffed on it, right? There are cards that are very clearly, in lots of detailed ways, down to the type line, similar to Goblin Rabble Master. That, to me, is like a different kind of thing, obviously, than saying something is a Baneslayer. And so I think some people don't have the Patrick Chapin definition of the def- the value is the body versus the value is the effect outside of the body. They just say, oh, a Bane Slayer is clearly like a five-ish mana thing that is really powerful that dies to removal. And it's like, well, that is more what Bane Slayer is specifically, but that definition of Bane Slayer is getting much further away from this at least attempt at something that is comprehensive and is mutually exclusive to describe creatures and magic. And I think that usage bleeds in a lot which then causes even more confusion. And that's why this is so difficult because we don't have a Merriam-Webster's thesaurus for this stuff, right? There is no canonical source on what we're using these words for. So someone will say Baneslayer, meaning, yeah, five mana threats with flying and lifelink, and other people will perceive it some, some other different way. Yeah, I mean, they're just taking components of different sets of description of ways to describe things and sort of mushing them together. Now you have these multiple sets of buckets where really there's a lot of overlap between them because they, they just aren't part of the same comprehensive system and the other thing is like i appreciate the the rigor that chapin put into his definition because i do think it actually approaches a pretty decent job of a comprehensive mutually exclusive descriptor for all the creatures of magic those three buckets Mm -hmm. with you know blurry lines between them like something can obviously be you could negotiate how far it is from muldrifter to to titan like if you make muldrifter a three three is it a titan now who knows that's you know all kind of gray area but the, the definitions are at least thought out right However, I think that also gets away from the like practical use of those terms, right? Because if your definition of a Baneslayer includes a Elvish Mystic, a Dark Confidant, a Baneslayer Angel, and you know other cards that are superficially very different how they actually play in the game, then what is the actual utility of that term, right? Like, when are you referring to that entire set, which is like theoretically a third of all the creatures in Magic? When are you referring to them in some productive way? Whereas the the definition that is like the Rabble Master definition, right? The definition of Baneslayer Angel that means, yeah, it's on the higher end of the curve. It's going to like brawl in combat really well. It basically demands a removal spell. That kind of definition of that term, to me, that is kind of a useful class of cards to talk about. And especially in cubes, which are largely singleton, 
I do think it's very helpful to think about cards in like classes, right? Like if you have a whole cube and you have just a one five mana threat that demands an answer that like behaves in this way in the entire cube, it's not impossible for it to be well integrated and balanced with everything else. But I think oftentimes you'll end up with cards that you want to have some kind of uh, redundancy for, some kind of support for where there's other cards that are like that card. And so that description to me feels a lot more useful in like normal conversation, right? Like if we're talking about card evaluation or deck building or cube tuning, describing a Baneslayer as like, yeah, is this an environment where you can afford to spend five mana, five or six mana on a threat that doesn't give you any immediate value, but if it doesn't get removed, you run away with the game? Like that tells me something about the environment. Tell me that Baneslayers are no good in a cube when your definition includes Elvish Mystics and Dark Confidants. It means nothing, right? That's a third of all the creatures in Magic. That, that term has become intellectually more rigorous, but I think practically way less useful. Something else you're sort of touching on is the fact that context is super, super critical to all these descriptions. Like hmm, you're just I've never, describing... What's context? I've never heard of that. It's sort of like where the card is and what are the surrounding cards... It's like a playmat. Change the card. Exactly. And sleeves. <laughs> context. If you put a, a, a Muldrifter in a Baneslayer sleeve, for example, does it become a Baneslayer? Great question. In my... So you just described... Now I want, now I want to hire an altarist to put Baneslayer Angel art on a Muldrifter and Muldrifter art on a Baneslayer Angel. That would be great. Let's do it. All right. Uh, next price for whatever. Um, <laughs> context really matters. So you just describe if we add another point of power to Muldrifter, does it become a Titan? But you can also say, what if we put uh, Muldrifter into my very low powered cube where just a 2-2 flyer is very relevant and that's a body that it's is going to now, generate baby. you value over time. Or let's take another weird example. Maybe you have Lyra Dawnbringer, which you just described as a Baneslayer because it is almost exactly a Baneslayer. But let's put it in context of uh, an angel tribal cube or a cube with a strong angel tribal theme. Now that Anthem might, you know, it, it might come down value, yeah. and give you immediate value. So I think that these terms can be valuable and used effectively when you say this is a Baneslayer because in this particular context, X, Y, Z, and now you're, you know, discussing the relevant thing of is this generating value or tempo or, you know, where does this card fit along this axis? But outside of that, just saying, I see a card blanket, it's a Baneslayer, let's move on. Like, that's not, that's just not an, a conversation that I'm interested in. So I try and just walk away from those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think also the thing we ran up against here is that a lot of people want things to be more tidy than they are, right? And so the shorthand, I think it's functional purpose. Which, which I get and is reasonable. Oh, absolutely. The functional purpose of the shorthand is to aid in communicating and thinking about these concepts when you're actually discussing things. But of course, the way you get deeper into something, when you've communicated the surface level of the idea and now you're going into the deep end about you know the viability of a card or the nature of an environment or the context it's in, we probably don't need to continue leaning on that term. But I think a lot of people have this desire to like, oh, I have learned a thing. It is that there are Bane Slayers and Mall Drifters and everything is a Bane Slayer and a Mall Drifter. And therefore, that's my mental model. Let's and do I, the exercise. <laughs> right. And I mean, even you earlier when I was like, there's also Titans. You were like, ah, it's too complicated, right? Like your brain was like, no, hold sure. on. It's supposed to be a binary. That's what happened. And everyone, like I very rarely see people talking about it as a triptych. It's always a binary, right? Because that's a compelling story. It's compelling. Also, which Titan? It's not compelling just a one of these many Titans. How do you think the tendency to refer to specific combinations of cmc and power tough sorry mana value and power toughness i feel like we've been good about that uh, we have been good I, I, i've been working on it how do you think the tendency to refer to specific combinations of mana value and power toughness with shorthand relate to this so for example calling things a grizzly bear if it's a two mana two two a hill giant if it's a three mana two three what's a hill giant this is embarrassing or a piker if it's a, a two mana two one 
how do uh he's a, maybe Hill Giants a three mana two two right? Hill Giants say four mana three three. Four mana three three. Ah, well, close enough. Do you think that has similar problems? Because that means in a similar space, right? There you're saying here's an iconic card, Grizzly Bear. It's two mana two two. We're going to refer to all of the two mana two twos for the rest of time as a Grizzly Bear. I don't see that one causing any arguments. No, I don't. I don't either. Outside of some very good uh, aesthetic versus uh, what is it? Aesthetic versus mana. Um, I can picture it. I don't know how to describe it either. The Matrix, where it's like uh, you know, good lawful neutral or chaotic good. Yeah. What's that? Uh, uh, alignment chart. There you go. We got there. Grizzly Bear alignment <laughs> chart. No, I don't because I think it's a much more concrete the, the the actual definition of that term. You know, we've basically invented this new word, new phrase that has a specific meaning that is grizzly bear, and everybody's pretty much on the same page about it. So it makes it a useful thing to talk about. Yeah, I think just the the fact that the language is not that useful when people don't agree on what the terms mean. Well, what about hate bears? Because people will refer to a wide variety of cheap creatures with small bodies that have some sort of taxing or disruptive effect as a hate bear it doesn't have to be a two minute two two how does that sit with you i, I think all these terms are fine as long as the people <laughs> that fine. are participating in the conversation are using them in a meaningful way where everyone everyone agrees on the terms and if you're saying hey this is a hate bear and i'm looking for more hate bears please help me you know tune this cube in this way and find more cards like this in this way then that can be totally meaningful but like all these terms, if people disagree and the conversation just devolves into, well, that's not, you're not using this term right, then those are conversations. I mean, my blanket recommendation is if you're ever having a conversation and someone says, you're not using this term right, or you find yourself saying, you're not using this term right, a really easy thing to do is just to stop using that term and instead replace it with the description of whatever you're trying to say. Just use a few more words mm-hmm. and get on with the conversation in a productive manner. Because you're just trying to use shorthands, and when the conversation becomes about what the shorthands are, it's so boring. So is your only qualm effectively with the Bane Slayer mold drifter talk, which is the most common, I think, infringement on this, that people are just inconsistent? If everybody agreed that there were Bane Slayers and mold drifters and it was a perfect binary and it was comprehensive and it was exclusive, and you were the only one that was like, actually, this doesn't make sense to me, but everyone else knew exactly what they were talking about when they were talking to each other. That works for you? Sure. And if I wanted to talk about a different concept, I would just avoid using those terms because it would immediately turn the conversation into that conversation. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what you do. Which is what I do. Which is kind of what you I do. I mean, now, like another yeah. another similar case is people have a very specific uh, vision of what aggro means. And that's fine. This it's is a great example. In a lot of high-powered environments, it looks a very certain way. and This is true of also the other macro archetypes. Absolutely. Mid-range control combo, yeah. So when I started initially designing some like much lower power cubes and I would say, okay, well, maybe the aggro deck looks like this, conversations would immediately be derailed because people would say, this is not an aggro deck. What you're talking about is not aggro. And I would say... It's fast mid-range. That's fu- Okay, great. It's fast mid-range, not aggro. <laughs> that's fine. Like the, That term is established enough to mean not, not just to mean the most proactive deck in an environment it's really come to mean a very specific play style and associated with the very specific types of cards and so i just if you go back and listen to me talk about stuff i just stopped using the word aggro very quickly and instead replace it with the most proactive deck here or the fastest deck here or any other people on that one i don't think you're you're giving up the goat on aggro you just think oh yeah you think it's become (laughs) too narrow to like one mana two ones that you're just not going to fight people on it anymore yeah, which is fine. And and, and there are not fine. differences <laughs> in sort of the, the tempo and texture of games between a low-powered environment and a high-powered but one. But that's so. true between two high-powered environments too, right? Like yes. That, that distinction is not unique to that power-level disparity. 
This all came up because I think it was Cryonicity. Apologies if I'm getting the wrong person. You know, you're all just avatars and usernames to me, so I don't know who anybody is. Wow. I mean, it's true. I don't know these people. They're just, uh, that's, it's not to say, not to dehumanize them, right? I, I know there's a human behind there. I just don't know who that human is. Anyway, was asking about my inclusion of Elvish Reclaimer in the Bun Magic Cube and why it was in there. And my, like, gut response, which is like, that's just another Tarmogoyf. And what I meant there, of course, is that, like, yeah, that is not in there because it fetches up lands. That is not, like, the reason that I think its power level can hang with the environment. It's in there because it's a card that is very efficient to cast and overstatted, especially in the late game. And so there I meant Tarmogoyf as this description of a card that's like a cheap threat, but still scales well into the late game as compared to a cheap threat in a more traditional or commonplace aggro deck, which often doesn't scale that well into the late game. You draw your one mana two one on turn five and it's probably can't attack and just kind of sits there. How do you feel about that kind of description? I'm just going to run these by you and see like, you know, what what, you, <laughs> what makes you angry and, and get a gut check to like how you feel about these different descriptions. Like I, I to me, I feel like that was quicker than describing everything I just said, right? Like, oh, that's another Tarmogoyf was like a pretty straightforward right. way to say, this is a card that fills a specific role in my environment. I think, again, it's just a challenge where if everyone's on the same page about the language we're using, then it, it is effective. And the context also really matters there, though. And so so you're not just saying this card is a Tarmogoyf in all contexts, and that's how we should think about identify this card. You're saying in this cube, I am interested in cards that are very efficient for just on rate, like big bodies for cheap mana costs and saying rather than big bodies for cheap mana costs saying goifs, let's get all the goifs that is fine. But if you also say, well, in this other cube, I'm interested in every crop rotation effect, then mm -hmm. it would also be totally reasonable to say, here's my Elvish Reclaimer. It's just another crop rotation. I'm going to play it. Like, and in Legacy, it's kind of both, right? Like right, in Legacy Constructed, it, it is basically both. Yeah. So again, it's like, and I think that was a reasonable place where somebody said, I don't understand what your term means. Let's reframe this conversation so we can be on the same page. And that's the the, the way to move forward. There was a lot of framing about it. And I saw you, you, you checked out of it all. You didn't participate in any of it. <laughs> I, I mean, I love Elvis Reclaimer. So that's the other place where I think this is especially useful to get on like a more uh, affirmative, you know, route here. I, I do think that thinking in these terms in like classifications of cards is a really valuable way to think about designing your cube. If you rewind and go back to a cube update I made last year where I added a lot more two-mana threats, you can read the whole blog post. I was like, because of the success of Tarmogoyf, I'm adding all these cards that are like two-mana threats that could theoretically end the game. Like Grim Flayer, Scourge of the Skyclaves, Magmatic Channeler, others that I can't think of off the top of my head. I didn't call them Tarmogoyfs in the post, right? Like, it doesn't actually matter that I called them Tarmogoyfs, but it was that kind of thinking. It was that kind of thinking of, Tarmogoyf, which is a card that wasn't in my cube for a long time, then I put in to test out kind of provisionally, performed quite well. Once that was proven to be successful in my environment, that thinking in terms of classifications of cards is what other cards perform in the game and in your deck like Tarmogoyf does, allowed me to kind of unlock a bunch of cards that were potential good inclusions in my cube. And I think that kind of thinking is is great. And we should encourage that at all, at all turns when it's condensed down to like a little soundbite, you know, quippy language thing that maybe gets a little problematic but but that i think is a very valuable thing yeah i mean and that's that exact point we've been talking a lot about communication and why it's important that we have good language and people are on the same page about what words mean that's the point where it really switches from a communication tool to a thought tool where you discovered here's this type of card that performs in a specific way that you enjoy more than you expected and allowed you to reframe a bunch of other cards and consider does this also fit into that bucket where I wouldn't I wouldn't have even considered it because you didn't have a word to talk about it right and I and also I, I, just, I also didn't realize that 
two mana, you know, four or fives or whatever could end games in my environment, right? Right. Right. And so it's like once you learn that that could be a thing, it's like where are other two mana cards that could potentially be four powered creatures? And it's like that's where you come across Magmatic Channelers of the world where, which you might have overlooked at first because you were like, well, this is not a great aggro threat, right? But is Tarmogoyf an aggro creature? Oh, terms. Terms. Terminology. But I think it's really important to acknowledge the negative side of it as well, where once you sort of get locked into terms, it can be really hard to then switch your mode into thinking about a card in a different way. So if you had just been looking at Elvis Reclaimer as a crop rotation effect, you might just never have, it wouldn't occur to you in the same way to think, oh, okay, it's actually also relevant in this context because from a different perspective, it actually is this different thing as well. And I think that maybe is something that happened to you with a lot of other cards like Tassigur is maybe a card that you put in the bucket of EDH cards or Delve threats or like there was some other way you were categorizing in your brain and that sort of made it more difficult for you to see it in this different perspective of just, you know, a relevant body that can be very efficient. It sounds stupid, but for a long time, I didn't think of just cheap, efficient power and toughness being like a thing that my cube was seeking, either because... I found it like less interesting than cards that had abilities and rules text and stuff, or because I didn't think it could hang on power level because it just all dies to Doomblade or whatever. It's just power and toughness. But there was definitely a long life of my queue where I was like, no, nah, cards have to do more than just have power and toughness. And now I don't feel that way at all. It was largely Merktide region, which, uh, which switched beyond that, and Tarmogoyf too. One other thing that is a negative of this that I think really should be acknowledged is that even if you're in a community or a circle where these terms are mutually understood and everyone knows what you're talking about and there is no friction where people are arguing about what's a Baneslayer and what's a, a Drifter, the net effect of having a bunch of specific lingo around a thing makes it much harder for people that are not within that community to like learn about it and get enfranchised in it because it's much you got, it's like a big learning curve, right? You're like pop in and all of a sudden people are using words and acronyms you've never heard of before. And I think it's much less friendly to newcomers than not using that kind of specific language. And I'm always in favor of being as welcoming as we possibly can in the cube world to to newcomers, especially those that are maybe newer to magic. I mean, obviously, a lot of these terms exist outside of cube, and so it's more of a magic kind of insular thing. But I think it's definitely important to note, too, especially if you're trying to grow your play group or talk about these kinds of concepts with a broader range of people. Maybe not everyone plays play with Goblin Rabble Master, right? They might not even know what that card is. And so that can uh, be very narrowing to conversations. Yeah, that's definitely true. And even even in today's age where, weirdly, I feel like communities are almost becoming more and more fractured as, you know, here's people that are just learning magic and only played in a Facebook group or only played at their LGS or only played in Arena. And even though we're all playing the same game, people have developed very different language to talk about concepts. So I, I definitely agree. It's really valuable to, especially when you're talking to somebody that you haven't talked a lot with before, just be aware of the language you're using. And if things don't make sense, like try make an effort to switch and use simpler language or try and understand the language that they're using. Anthony, I've got the fandom magic wiki pulled up the list of magic slang. If I just hit you with terms, can you uh, rate them net positive for the community or net negative for the community's communication with, with each other? How's that sound? I can do my best. All right, let's go with answer answer that's it's amazing how how much that word changes when you put it in a different context i i think that's a fine term i think it gets used in good ways 
It, it's an interesting one because it, it means also different things depending on a game state. It's like, oh, I played a big creature. You might say, oh, I don't have an answer to that. Or, you know, I have one answer to that. I need to take this line to maximize my chance of getting it. I, I think that's a pretty good term. All right. How about beatdown? I just don't love that. I don't aesthetically like that. Uh, but a little violent for you. It's a little violent. Um, you know, this is a game where we like got a card called murder. But again, I think pretty universally understood. How about blinking? So those terms do get a little confusing. Blinking, flickering. That's a fair point. You're bringing up the fact that a lot of these kinds of terms also just originate from a card, but not just like creature types, but specific effects. Yeah. Uh, like rampant growth is all ramping and all kinds of stuff like that. It's a long tail. And I think that uh, basically some of them are very evocative and clear and some of them get a little murky. Especially, yeah, blinking versus bouncing versus bl- what's the one where it comes back at ends of end of turn or comes back immediately? Well, I think one is flickering and one is one is blinking. flickering, one is blink. So I will go on. What is blink? What is blink? Com- blink comes from blinking spirit, actually, which was a creature you could just return to your hand whenever you wanted. And flickering comes from the card flicker, which was awful. It was a two mana one shot. I believe sorcery speed ephemerate effect was flicker. Maybe you could target your opponent's creatures. I'm going to look it up right now just to make sure I don't get this wrong. Yeah, uh, Flicker was a sorcery, one and a white, and uh, it did target any non-token permanent. So you could also flicker your opponent's Planeswalker to get its loyalty lower if they upticked, I guess. Neat. That card is bad, but that effect is now quite powerful. Board wipe? Board wipe is complicated. I've definitely like, met people in sort of other play groups that are like, they just call them bla- board clears, I think is what oh, they were calling them. It's like, it's like oh, so this wrong is to- totally different. That's like going to the Midwest and they're like, you want to pop? And I'm like, no, I don't want to pop. What is that? Give me a soda. Or I remember as well, maybe literally the first time I ever left our our like actual group of friends and played with strangers at a, a game store, sat down and someone's like, oh, I'm walking, guys. And we just looked at them and we were so confused. And like, he, he, Not okay. They were also very confused, uh, but he repeated a couple times, I'm guys, wogging. I'm wogging. I'm wogging. It's like, then do I you need me to call an ambulance? Picked up and you... read Wrath of God and said, oh, oh, I see what you're doing here. So what's the question again? Do you feel like this term generally is productive for the community or destructive in terms of establishing clear communication i think especially in in commander it's a term that happens a lot and is necessary to have some term for that and you think it's okay let's let's say i think there are two separate aspects one is is this a great word do we love this word and one is (laughs) is this a useful like cellar door is this a a component of the game that is worth having a description for and absolutely yeah like or is it like a, a functional enough like for me like a board wipe can be a lot of things. It can be destroy all creatures. It can be exile all permanents. It mm-hmm. can be, you know, uh, anything on that kind of spectrum. Some people will call it a board wipe. It's a pyroclasm, which of course doesn't wipe everything. It just kills some selective things. Plague Wind is a good example of a thing. I think it's pretty clear in from direct card, plague winding your opponent. It's a lot of these. Yeah, you're There's right. a lot it's of these I've internalized that I have not realized how many there are just kind of stuck within me. How do you like edict? Okay, so now you're gonna you're gonna make me go on a rant. So I really don't love the term edict because it is completely meaningless outside of the magic cards, and specifically, the word doesn't mean what it, it means in magic. And the only way you know it is because of the original card edict. And or, uh, what was it originally? First one was diabolic edict, I believe. A few minutes later, cruel edict looks like it was the first one, I guess, before diabolic. That makes sense because it's a little worse. It looks like 
Chainer's Edict even was before Diabolic Edict. But it looks like Cruel Edict was actually the first one in Portal. Anyway, you say it doesn't mean what people think it means. And obviously, it has nothing to do with killing anybody, but... It's like an official proclamation-y like thing. Sure, but right? how many how many f- spells could you frame? Could you flavor as this is a proclamation? All a proclamation kinds of different things. Proclamation from the bad guy. A proclamation that says you must die. Uh, I, yeah, like <laughs> I I don't know. I don't I don't see the connection. And as a new player, it was very confusing. I, I think that Magic is a very self. I, I'm not going to say. I think Magic is a very self-referential game, and a lot of cards that just got created early in the game's history used names that were flavorful for whatever the context of that set, whatever the context of the story, and then those names got reused because it it just made sense to, to reinforce the actual game's mechanics. You know, wishes mean a certain thing, and edicts mean a certain thing, and wrath means a certain thing. And I do think that a lot of those make the game a little bit less accessible, even though they, they make it easier once you sort of are in the language. And more fun, too. Like, it comes up because it's fun to have a language talk about the thing you like. Yeah, that's true. So I think it is always a balance of how accessible is a community because of the language that it uses and uh, how uh, satisfying or how how much it it sort of reinforces participation in the community. I'm realizing as I'm reading this list of magic slang that I got Hill Giant and Grey Ogre confused. Wow, yeah, you did. (sighs) Boy, that's bad. Oh, man, on the EDA stream I was on this past week, you might have seen that I forgot the rules text of Ristic Study. Yep. That tells you how often I play EDH, that I forgot what Ristic Study did because... You learn, it's, it's, you learn that one pretty quick in your DH tables, I think. Confusing a little bit because they're doing more and more effects that trigger whenever your opponents do different things. And yeah. uh, the, there were a couple in play, I think. It feels to me like modern EDH, they designed all the cards with the goal of the player never, ever, ever running out of things to spend their mana on ever. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah, it sounds about right. You get two partner commanders and half the cards you play are also partners, which go search up other cards from your deck. It's just... Plus you get your companion and... Oh, so much. Impulsive draw... This was a little more like an R&D term and a little less like, I don't really hear players referring to this often, but, you know, it's a thing. Yeah, I think maybe it's worth talking a little bit about sort of the, the language that is used by R&D, because I agree, I think this is this is an R&D term. And, and I think that they are, within within Wizards, very proactive about creating language, because they are trying to design so many novel and Mark things. Rosewater. And Mark Rosewater oh, loves, loves to do this. He loves doing this shit. Uh, there's a couple episodes of Drive to Work where he talks about it, and I think that it does serve a real function. If, if you're trying to say, here's the color pie, blue does card draw, what does red do? How do we define this in a clear way? Again, if you have to explain, well, it can draw cards, but then it has to either discard them or, you know, can cast them potentially this turn only. And like wrapping all that complexity into something that you can actually take that concept and put it into your brain and say, oh, we can do a burn spell with impulsive draw and a creature with impulsive draw and then do all the fine tuning of what that means that I think is really critical to just a group of creative people making something that is so complex. But again, I think that there is a little bit of a drawback where when you are creating this language, you're just like all the things we've been talking about, making that environment more exclusive in terms of who can actually participate because you need to have access to that language. It also sort of creates a structured way where these are now the thoughts you're going to use and unless you make an equally big effort to switch that language or evolve that language you can very much get stuck into thinking these ways and actually reduce some creativity but overall i think that a lot of these terms are like net positive because we need ways to talk about it impulsive draw is a tough one because we've gotten so many slight variations on it especially recently with all the ones that you cast the cards until the end of your next turn which is quite a bit better than until the end of turn for obvious reasons. But 
we've gotten that on recent cards and i feel like it always takes me two reads like yes okay that is actually not this one it's the other one and that's the one that's slightly better which is more reading to do mana flooded mana screwed those are very resonant terms i, I think that we got to have those what do you think about you mentioned we talked about it briefly earlier what do you think about describing a deck as a mid-range deck choose your context i know you're going to say context matters and you may choose your own it's fine it's <laughs> fine it's fine <laughs> no 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 feelings about what I, I always felt like my understanding my grasp of the like aggro mid-range control spectrum was that i had clear pretty clear definitions of like what aggressive decks want to do in most environments which is beat their opponent before they get to use all their cards regardless of your speed if your opponent gets to use all their cards, your aggro deck probably didn't get there. Uh, your control deck, which very often wants to go to the extreme late game and nullify a lot of their opponent's cards, either with board wipes or big blockers or whatever, just like play cards that are slower but better, right, and more powerful. Like that binary makes sense to me. Like either go fast and make the cards irrelevant or go slow and have better cards. The mid range always felt like, and there's something else in the middle. Boop. So there's another one in there somehow. It felt like the least defined of those three decks to me. I agree with it being less defined. I do see value in that there was a big difference between two points in a spectrum and three points in a spectrum, where three actually more clearly defines the spectrum at all rather than just a binary. So I, I think the term is valuable for that reason. Say more about that, though. Just that it's it's valuable not just to think of only aggro and control, because also that's not how it works and even though there are but it's other also not points, only aggro mid-range control though. you're right but i think that it, it it creates a feeling it makes it easier to talk about well it's more mid-range than it's not it's not crystal clear <laughs> <laughs> i mean like the definition of a mid-range you can define aggro and control decks and then say and a mid-range deck can go big enough to be an aggro deck but still fast enough to beat a control deck like that's kind of the definition as right. i understand it it presents that rock paper scissors sort of nature which you it's harder to have just when you talk about these two components at the end of the spectrum. And I do fully reject the rock, paper, scissors of the aggro mid-range and control matchup spectrum, which maybe we've talked about in the show before. Maybe we haven't. Maybe this will garner a lot of uh, emails when I say that. But I reject that. But uh, I do think it is helpful to understand how a deck intends to win in a given matchup and understand like what your strategy is, basically. Like, do you care about trading? Do you want to you know, chump block here? Like, those questions are all answered by an understanding of the overall breakdown. Yeah, mid-range just felt like uh, kind of a useless name. There's like, yeah, the one in the middle, the one that doesn't have a better descriptor, the middle one. That's what mid-range is. Let's give it a good name. Gerald. Permission. Fine. Thumbs up. This is a great segment so far. I don't know about this <laughs> I love how, love how riled up you're getting about all of these. It's great. How do you feel about uh, people using the term prison, like a prison deck? What does that mean to you? Very little. <laughs> <laughs> I don't play constructed. You could put a prison deck in a cube. That could be a thing. The rummaging versus looting relationship in those two terms. I think those are good. I think they're good. I mean, this is another one where the term itself, it's sort of resonant, but I, I it's really hard to put myself back in the pre-playing magic bias because I think that legitimately a lot of things about magic were very confusing and clunky when I first learned the game. Yeah. Chief, chief among them, converted mana cost, was one of the most nonsensical terms that you really don't really, like that one i mean it was like converted to what just 
it's the it's, it's the number. What is it being converted to? It was so it's confusing. Converted to a number. You take all the colors I, out and you convert it to the raw number. That was a horrible term. Man of value is not value is perfect, better, but it I is agree. a lot better. So looting again is another one of these effects where they had Merfolk looter who was like stealing something, so he was a looter. So. It, it, it was just sort of self-referential more than actually descriptive. So, I, I, again, I agree that these are, and same with Rummaging Goblin, these are descriptive terms that are useful, and we, as cube designers, like to include these effects a lot. So, sure, good terms to have. The terms themselves are not great in terms of accessibility. But that's that's going to be the problem with all jargon, to say everything is going to have a perfectly clear etymology that both people within the system and new to the system are going to immediately understand that's just an impossibility to end this let's have a more lighthearted segment let's let's get the energy back up here okay there is a list on this page of obsolete magic terms okay i'm gonna hit you with these i just want you to know if if you know what these mean i'm gonna hide the list yeah don't look at it all right what's a 187 anthony a 187 i'll give you a hint that is the california penal code for murder is it a removal spell it's specifically a creature with a comes into play ability that destroys another permanent. Like Necrotals. Oh, I call it a Necrotal. <laughs> Necrotals and Flame Tongue Kavus were apparently called 187s. All right, I'm over one. Do you know what a barn is? It is a large building that holds horses. Got it in one. Do you know what a basilisk is? Wait, is that what a barn is? No, a barn apparently is a player who follows around a much better, more famous player hoping to benefit from their experience and success. That's... Short for barnacle. Oh, okay. I was going to say that's a bard. Usually negative. Basilisk. Uh, lizard. If we ever do a live show, you know, when the pandemic is over uh-huh. at KubeCon or something, uh, my, my dream is to have us on stage and for me just to be hitting you with Pokemon pictures and for you to be live Googling the actual real life animals that the Pokemon are. Uh, Why do I have to live Google it? I have animal Google in my brain. Because it's fun, it's fun to watch you live Google that. That's okay. a fun thing okay. for you to do. Uh, for, for listeners, Anthony never played a Pokemon game. Doesn't know any of the Pokemans. I've but, learned some since. But knows a lot a lot about just the natural sciences. And so you show him a whatever mon, a, a Borbamon or whatever, a Gor- I mean, Gorlimon. It's like, what is this one? It's a giraffe. And they're like, no, it's a giraffe It's like, what are you, what are you doing? Some game? of them are like that. Some of them are weirder. But you have an uncanny ability to, within five seconds, on Google Images, produce a photo <laughs> of like a specific creature that looks exactly like the Pokemon. And it's a very fun game to play. All right, we'll do it. As you get increasingly irritated at how Pokemon just took real life creatures, slapped some colors on them, and then called it a Pokemon. Do you know what a Gro, G-R-O is? No, I do not. Have you ever heard of the original Gro deck, which was called Miracle Gro? I've heard of Miracle Gro. This is a deck built around Quirion Dryad, which is the one and a green one one that when you cast a spell, it's white, blue, or black. It gets a plus one, plus one counter. Cool card. So some sort of deck with a snowballing cheap threat, I guess, was a Gro deck. I don't know why this is considered obsolete. It was actually very funny. It says here, mostly obsolete as Quirion Dryad left extended in 2008 and the powerful Tarmogoyf is available at the same mana cost for contemporary decks. So all the Groves were replaced by Goyfs. Yeah, checks out. <laughs> Tricks, T-R-I-X. Is that like Cheerios? No, but Cheerios is a term, but that one's not obsolete. I'll give you a hint, it was a specific combo deck and I think you will have heard of this combo before. But probably only in the context of like EDH. Triskelion? This was uh, the Illusions of Grandeur Donate combo. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. All right, last one, Troll Shroud. I do know Troll Shroud. Troll Shroud is hexproof from yeah. which troll? Just hexproof. From Troll Aesthetic. Troll Aesthetic. Acetic? Perfect. Acetic? Aesthetic? I would say aesthetic. 
Yeah. Anyway. All right. This has been Anthony and Andy talk about words from magic. How's my score? Pretty good, good right? You did pretty good. Yeah. Great, thanks. Uh, let's check the big board. And uh, you won. Congratulations. You're going, home. You're going home with a brand new Kia. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Dear listener, if you are an expert in WebGL and image processing and want to help me with a small project, let me know. I would add that it's kind of a big project. And if you do happen to be an expert in WebGL, which is not out of the question, there's a lot of programmers. a little array buffer help and some pre-multiplied alpha images. That one I think I might be able to help you with, the pre-multiplied alpha images specifically. Maybe. Depends on how exporting images works, but... I can definitely try some things. Anyway, if you do, I mean, there's a big overlap of programmers and Magic players, not coincidentally. I think Q players especially. So if you happen to be a, a WebGL expert and uh, you want to help us out with the project, holler at your boy and your boy is Anthony. Otherwise, look out for a cool new project in a year. <laughs> in question mark. <laughs> the more people that contact Anthony to help, the sooner it will be in front of you. All the music for this show is produced by DJ James Nasty. I should clarify all the actual music. Sometimes I put in dumb sounds and stuff, and you shouldn't blame DJ James Nasty for that. He's a good DJ that does good not-joke songs uh, and all the dumb stuff. That's my fault. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. All the listening is done by you. Thank you, Anthony, for talking about words with me. I love to talk about words. Word, dude. All right, I got to give one quick shout-out, actually, about words. Shouts-outs to words. Uh, you don't read fiction, so you haven't read Cryptonomicon. Nope. If you want to, you know... Uh, I, I read Moby Dick last year, okay? So I read a big fiction. Wow, wow. Uh, one of my favorite, absolute favorite books of all time, Cryptonomicon uh, by Neil Stevenson, has this absolutely gorgeous sword little... Sword guy. Absolutely gorgeous sequence. I think actually multiple sequences talking about linguistic relativity where he he sort of does this weird thing where he's describing a situation and it's sort of... It doesn't feel like you're being educated about something, but then all of a sudden this concept emerges and it just comes out very crisply and it makes so much sense that I absolutely adore that. There, there's another segment in there about uh, describing the Enigma machine and the way that the the prime numbers of the different rotors are really important to make the machine work. But he starts talking about someone riding a bicycle and like a character riding a bicycle down the street and the mechanics of the bicycle and what would go wrong if there was a break in the chain. It's just lovely. Go read that book. Also, go read like real stuff about linguistic relativity, but read that too. That's a pretty convincing sale to me to read the Necronomicon, the way you just sold it's it. It's called Cryptonomicon. Cryptonomicon. It's also an extremely <laughs> lengthy book and at times some might describe very boring. Look, I read but- Bobby Dick, so I'm, I'm in for the long, boring books sometimes. My thing about fiction, and this is, I know, look, I'm, I'm bad. I'm not a smart guy, whatever. It bugs no, fine. They just, I'm reading it and I'm just like, you just made all this up. <laughs> this is all made up stuff none of this is real this is all made up stuff and I'm like why am I reading a bunch why of made up stuff why you just make this up that's, that's how I feel which I got a broken brain what can I say that's how I feel about fiction sometimes yeah, that's should trigger warning now that i'm thinking about it that book has a big cryptocurrency element to it mm. it felt different when i read it many years Look, ago the technology of cryptocurrency is interesting oh totally yeah the huge broy capitalist system that has absorbed it and use it explicitly and exclusively for trading high margin assets is uh completely unappealing that's the problem with it technology is cool yeah not for me that's, that's the problem with all, te- all technology is cool all application of te- 95 of the application of technology bad and stupid